Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make. But don't say we didn't warn you. Are you ready? Maybe. I guess. Okay. Take, take a deep breath because I'm going to do something that might or might not make it into an episode. What also, are you just about like, to do? Just like, just like <laughs> go with it and like help me out. It will become apparent uh-huh. as soon as I start speaking. Okay. 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 Are you ready? I'm kind of scared now. Don't okay. be scared. It's going to be fun okay. or dumb. Okay. <laughs> it will be one of those two things. <laughs> I love fun, okay. dumb things. Okay. Okay. <gasps> okay. I'm ready. In a world that is literally on fire, where everything is terrible, two women have the audacity to come back from an extended summer hiatus. This is the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. Pew, 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 pew. Was that fun? Yeah, that was fun. Okay, great. I thought about it like 20 minutes ago. I was like, we should do this. Uh, anyway. I love it. the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We're your hosts, Jess Hamlet. And Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Hamlet in this world. In this world. Not that world. This world. The other world, the good one, where sometimes things aren't on fire for 10 minutes. Yep. And this week, it's Cymbeline <laughs> 201. Thanks for listening and having faith in us that we would come back one day. We know you stuck around. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. Um, Welcome the fuck back, Jess. How oh are God. you? How are you doing? How are you living? <laughs> Are you I mean, on fire? Gestures in 2020. I know, right? It's like, I'm fine. It's fine. Everything's fine here. Um, Are you I, the dog amid the fire? And he's like, yeah, this is fine. This yeah, is fine. I kind of am. It's but fine. like, like w- Tuscaloosa's in the sweet spot between all those hurricanes that we just got in the south oh, of the yeah. United States. Like, yeah. we missed we missed it, it all missed us. We got nothing. We so had lucky. like a day of wind. Yeah, yeah. Really, I just like can I, I'm just gonna knock on every piece of know, wood right? right here. I'm knocking on wood over here for you. It's tornado season is coming, and it's 2020, and no, <laughs> no, I say no. Stop it. Yeah. Um, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm finishing up the diss and I'm officially on the job market and, you know, working on job applications and hoping for an interview would be nice somewhere. <laughs> also, like a job would be nice, but I'll I'll take an interview to start. Yeah, I'm yeah. good. Becky's good. The, you know, pandemic is still pandemicing, but I never leave my house. Uh, my students are amazing this semester. They're so great. They're so, so great. They're so smart. Every single one of them is smarter than I have been or ever will be. Um, and they're they're champs. They're doing the Zoom thing and it sucks, but they're they're having a great time with me and they make me feel really good about myself. So, That's good. Um, yeah, it's all it's like fine. Things are it's fine. Everything's fine. How are you? How how was your summer? How are things? Um, it, you know, it's been a lot of up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, I I gardened, but my garden kind of failed. Did. Like, there's too much shade. There was too much shade. It was a very wet summer up here in Virginia, too. So, like, my plants drowned (laughs) and they didn't get enough sun. It was, was you know, (sighs) for somebody who really, like, prides herself on self-sufficiency, my garden did not do as well as I wanted to this year. But um, because of you, partially, I did get really good at baking and my yes, you did, and my baby. sourdough starter Gawain is thriving. Um, 
for our listeners, just so you know, Jess and I did like a, you know how some friends do like a seven day juice cleanse? Jess and I did a uh, a sourdough yeast cultivation. I was looking for another word that was not cleanse. Um, starter? A starter, yeah, a want. starter <laughs> cultivation. We, we cultivated sourdough starters together. Um, and then we named them after Arthurian characters. Jess's is Lancelot and mine is Gawain. And they are the knights of the sourdough starter. Um, because crazy shit like that is what happens to your imagination and your brain when you're stuck at home all the time. Um, yeah. yeah, so like I came back to work full time. I did a wildly successful summer camp online, which like nobody thought that was going to be as successful as it was. That was very exciting. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'm getting pretty good at this like digital education platform thing, I think. Um, so, you know, it's been, but it's been like very, it's been very up and down. I'm, I know I'm not the only one with that experience, but that's, it's been a lot of wins and a lot of losses. Girl, that's so real. Yeah. Um, but back to the pod. We're back. Yeah. A little later than expected, but we're back. But we're here. Tell us some, there are going to be some changes this season. Big changes come in the season. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff to be aware of. Take it away. Yeah. The the first thing to look out for is that this is going to be a shorter season. Um, You know, usually we, in the past, not usually, but just in the past, we have come back like at the end of August, beginning of September, and we go until basically the end of the academic year. And we... You know, we usually take a month off at the holidays, but four episodes a month for like eight months out of the year is punishing and we burned ourselves out. So we are not going to be doing that again, yeah. <laughs> probably ever. Yeah. Uh, so what what you can expect this season is starting now, starting today, now, Monday, October 5th, 2020, mm-hmm. um, you can expect new episodes every other week on Mondays instead of every week um, and that will go through like the end of March I mm-hmm. think uh, we're, we're going to do 12 episodes so whatever 24 weeks from October yeah. 5th is I think it's the end of March I think that's, yeah. that's about where we're going to stop we also are going to do some new kinds of episodes I'm we... so excited about these like, I'm yeah, so uh, excited about these Yeah, next week, in fact, is going to be a very different kind of episode than anything we've done before. Uh, And when we're done here today, we should talk about that. Yes, we should. Uh, Note note to self. Yeah. Yeah. We don't really, we're, it's, yeah. So there's going to be, we're going to have some new kinds of episodes to look out for. I think we've got three or four coming this season that are going to be like not what you are used to. Um, But hopefully still useful and still completely on brand. So. Look out yeah, for that. they're going to be fun. They're going to be fun. Yeah. Um, we also have some new features in in some episodes, like uh-huh. the one that we're about to walk up to right now uh-huh. uh, is a brand new feature that we're excited about. Um, and then possibly... We're going to have a very big announcement. Capital V, capital B, capital A, very big announcement. So uh, that's that's what we got come up for you. Um, yeah. But now let's do a new feature. Yeah. Oh, that was I don't have I have mugs on hand right now, not wine glasses. OK, hang on, hang I'll, on, hang on. I'll, my, I'll my, fix my it wine in glasses post. are closed. No, hang on, hang on. They're right here. OK, OK. All I have is this morning's coffee mug and tonight's pint glass. Oh, that's lovely. Okay. Do it one more time just so we yep. have two. Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really good. I can capture that. And wait, that's hang great. on. That sounds there, better. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay. Uh-huh. I'm going to put these away now. <laughs> Yay. Okay. All right. Take us, take us into this. Yeah. So this is a new feature that we're going to call Happy Hour. Um, and it is a, a cocktail of stuff, if you will, <laughs> that uh, of, of things that make us happy in this dumpster fire of a time of life yeah, right now. Like, things like um, inclusivity. And decolonization. 
and anti-racist pedagogy. And sometimes puppies and other wholesome, not related to social justice issues, but just things that make us happy. Right. Sometimes those things overlap and sometimes they don't. And that's okay. Um, But this is a new segment that celebrates and embraces that because we got to find the good stuff when we can. So the happy hour is a a time where we will recommend some stuff that isn't terrible. And that's really all the endorsement that we have. Um, So to kick things off from me. um, So each time we do this, I will have a a recommendation or two and then Jess will also have a recommendation or two depending on how many things have made us happy in this period of time um so for me actually like this was amazing but I'm not sure it made me happy but it certainly made me feel better so like but not happy I don't know if how if, if that makes sense but um but it, uh, in key, yeah mm-hmm. yeah well in Positive case you have feelings feelings yeah, that uplifted yeah, you in like, some kind of way Yes. You were yes. were you you would say that you were buoyed? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Mhm. Buoyed. Yeah. Um so this entire summer, uh we at where I work in my day job at the American Shakespeare Center, we've been producing Othello. Um and and performing our actors have been performing Othello, which has caused me to have a lot of capital F feelings about Othello and how much I struggle with this play and and watching the actors struggle with this play during this time. So I encourage everyone to watch Ayanna Thompson's keynote called Shakespeare and Blackface slash Shakespeare and Unfreedom. And we will post the link to that. It's on YouTube. And we'll post the link to that uh, on our website. But this was the keynote address at the Shakespeare and Social Justice Scholarship and Performance in an Unequal World conference hosted by the Shakespeare Society of Southern Africa as part of its 2019 Triennial Congress. And this is her speaking at that event uh, in Cape Town, South Africa, uh, which is super cool. and basically, you know, she, um, it is like peak Ayana where, you know, she's like, I guess I'm the Othello whisperer and she kind of makes light of it, but also like she is the Othello whisperer. She gets called in to like talk actors who are playing Othello off a ledge a lot. Uh, and so she, this, this talk has a lot to do with that. Um, and in fact, I ended up forwarding it to, um, the actor who's playing Othello for us right now because she's been struggling. Uh, she's been struggling a lot. So anyway, I've been spreading it around the company, actually, and it's been making a lot of people feel better because it's putting voice to struggles that people have been having, thinking they were alone and isolated in that struggle. And Ayana is actually up here in this keynote like, nah, this is pretty common. <laughs> and let me break down for you why. Um, so it's useful and it's informative. And um, yes, I would say it has buoyed me. And I hope it buoys you. And I just like saying buoy because it's almost booby, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) And that's my happy hour. (laughs) Great. Um, So I have I have two recommendations for you this week. Um, The first is the pre-modern critical race studies focused issue of the journal Shakespeare Quarterly. Uh, It was published in 2016 and it is currently available to download for free until November 30th. We will put a link on on our website. You can download the whole thing. if you, like many, many others right now, are new to critical race theory, I want to make a special plug for the introductory essay that was written by Kim F. Hall and Peter Erickson. Uh, it gives a really nice overview of the field and really illustrates what's at stake here. So just check it out. Um, I cite that introduction in my dissertation a bunch because it's so good. So uh, that is my first recommendation for you. My second is a graphic essay that appeared in The New Yorker just a couple weeks ago. Um, It's short, it's sweet, and it gives a wonderfully queer reading of Twilight. So check it out. It's amazing. Uh, Sidebar, um, spent this summer among doing all of the other things that I did uh, in a Twilight book club. That's right. I remember you telling me about that. Oh, God. Uh, Yeah, my friends Courtney and Emma, we we decided to reread the Twilight series together because there was a new book out this summer and we had to read that. So we had to reread the series. Anyway, then we saw this um, and I sent it to them and I was like, this is required reading for our book club. And then we read it and we talked about it and the, anyway I, 
<laughs> I will not apologize for loving Twilight. It is trash and it is bad, but I love it. So I will not apologize. Yeah. Oh, I also wouldn't ask you to. This summer I fed a deer with my bare hands. That feels like something I should have mentioned earlier. You're a damned Disney princess. I really am. Yeah, I went home to visit my dad and they live in the woods and there are deer that come up to the house and I just I made friends with a deer. And I, I fed her apples and peanuts from my bare hands. And she she let me scratch her between her ears. Um Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so those are my recommendations. Also, if you need recommendations for like delightful, fluffy novels about royals falling in love with each other, I read a bunch of those this summer also. Ooh. So yeah. I want uh, those, please. I yeah, well, like I I sat down to do this today and I was like, I cannot list all seven novels. <laughs> But I might in future episodes. So <laughs> I read a lot Excellent. of fun books. Anyway, okay. So that's 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 happy hour. Clink clink. That's our happy hour. Clinky. Huzzah. Great. Um so for a tool one level episode, just to refresh your memory, because it's been a while. Um, we operate on the assumption that you have a basic familiarity with the play we're going to talk about. So in 201 episodes, we don't do a synopsis of the play. If you are brand new to Cymbeline and have somehow stumbled your way into our podcast for the first time today, right here, right now, um, that's cool. Stick with us. But you might want to also go back and listen to our Cymbeline 101 episode where you do get all of that introductory stuff. Plus, you get to hear Mia Gosling say smart things about Cymbeline oh, in that yeah. episode because she was our guest. That was um, so and if fun. you like, yeah, if you like the good Tickle Brain comics, then definitely go and listen to that episode. Yeah. Um, so in 201 episodes, we go narrow and deep on a couple topics relating to the play. So today we are talking about the Bronze Age Celtic King, Cunabellan. Did I say it right that time? Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, and then Evil Queens on the Jacobean stage, except we're going to do those in reverse order because I'm talking about queens and you're talking about kings. So, mm, yes. Yeah. Anyway. And you're talking first. So I'm, go yeah, for it. That's, yeah, that's what happens. Uh, okay. So Jacobean evil queens are one, totally a thing, and two, secret pot shots at Elizabeth? Question mark? I think the answer is actually. Ooh, not. tea. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, so here's a quick census of some evil queens in early modern drama. Not all of them yes, are Jacobean. Please. Okay, so starting with uh, Titus Andronicus, 1589, we have Tamara, who is captured and then secures her life and then systematically destroys Titus's family. Okay, uh, in like 1590, 91, we have Margaret of Anjou, uh, who spends three of Shakespeare's plays plus an additional scene in a fourth play flirting and sleeping with men to whom she is is not married, uh, directing troops, killing her enemies, and hurling curses at men. Evil queen, I don't know, but you know, she gets lumped in with like all of that, the the bad, the she-wolves of Shakespeare. She's certainly bloody, if not yeah. evil, for yeah. sure. Okay. 1600, play called Lust's Dominion. Eugenia, who's the queen of Spain, plots with her lover to dispose of Prince Philip, who's the heir to the throne. She also murders Maria, who is her rival for her lover's attention. 1606, we have Lady Macbeth, who eggs on her husband's faltering ambition, and, you know, that ends in their mutual destruction. Uh, 1607 in The Devil's Charter, which we did an episode on last season. Uh, Lucretia uses her position as the Pope's daughter to get away with murdering her husband. So not not a queen, but, you know, in a in a pa uh, place of power. 1608, we have Dionysa, who tries to murder Pericles' daughter to make her own daughter appear more attractive in Pericles. In 1610, Cymbeline's queen tries to get her son positioned as heir by poisoning the heir apparent. Uh, 1610, again, the countess in John Marston's The Insatiate Countess uses her position to sleep her way through Italy and to contract one of her lovers to murder another one of her lovers. Um... In 1611, the Queen Mother in Beaumont and Fletcher's King and No King spends the play's first four acts trying to kill her son. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, 1613, Salome orders Miriam's execution in the tragedy of Miriam. 
Also 1613, the Duchess and Thomas Middleton's The Witch hires a courtier to murder her husband and promises to place the assassin in a protected position. 1620, in Fletcher and Massinger's Custom of the Country, Hippolyta uses witchcraft to remove her romantic rival. And finally, in Thomas Middleton's Women Were Women in 1623, Livia orchestrates the rape of Bianca, tricks her niece Isabella into an incestuous relationship with her uncle Hippolyto, and is ultimately responsible for the play's entire body count, which is seven deaths by Act 5, six of which are on stage at the same time. And we've also done an episode about that last season. And it was great. Yeah. And we have a midi-sode on the witch somewhere. Yes, we do. Uh, but that's really just me telling you the plot and being like, everybody read this. No, we did a full episode on the witch. We did. Courtney was our guest. We did this. That's right. Yeah. So yes, there are two did. episodes on the witch somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. Go find them. They're amazing. Um, okay. So there, there are some immediate issues with this list of, of women that I have just said. Um, the women use their power to rid themselves of husbands, romantic rivals, or personal rivals. They often use their sexuality as tools to achieve those ends. The overlap between personal and political motivations is a Venn diagram that is almost a single circle. Uh, and while this is clearly not an exhaustive catalog of all the nefarious, powerful women in early modern drama, uh, these plays do cue, skew curiously Jacobean. So these corrupt women characters are nearly always sexualized and or use their sexuality as a tool, which reflects an inversion of the virgin queen. So post-Elizabethan female characters in positions of political power reflect the major fears of the Elizabethan era, exercised in the safe space of a Jacobean England with a secure dynasty and a man on the throne, both of which allow the playwrights to consider the worst that can happen when women are in positions of power. And the worst that can happen is murder, murder, emasculation, cuckoldry, murder, manipulation, witchcraft, usurpation of power from men, murder, and, um, murder. <laughs> in case you were wondering, there's some murder. So Cymbeline's queen is not as famous a character as Lady Macbeth, but her performative legacy is much the same. Um, in the introduction to the Arden Three Cymbeline, which is edited by Valerie Wayne, the queen gets just five mentions in the section of performance history, or in the section on performance history in the introduction, while in the Arden Three Macbeth, Lady Macbeth gets like most of a 13 page section and it also includes several production photos. So, like, though these two women act much the same in their plays, Lady Macbeth is the more famous one for reasons that, you know, I don't know that I agree with, but Macbeth is a more famous play and also, frankly, a better play. I don't know that Lady Mac is the better character, but whatever. So, like Lady Macbeth, the queen in modern performance is often reduced to a caricature of evil and sexuality. In this way, the queen is reduced from a canny character with a hunger for power and control to a woman with no means to achieve what she wants apart from using her body. Okay? So she secures her position as Cymbeline's queen with her body. She controls him with her body. She attempts to manipulate both her husband and her son by using her body. Though she only dresses her son Clotten three times in the play, and two of those three times are simple commands to, like, follow Cymbeline, her one speech of substance to him tends on advice for successfully wooing Imogen. Uh, her speech is not outright lascivious, but it is full of advice to dissemble and ignore Imogen's will, which puts her in a conversation that draws on unnatural female behavior and stems from her use of her sexuality as a means for achieving all of her ends. Cymbeline's Queen is a representative example of the way Jacobean playwrights used evil, powerful women to invert the ideal and legacy of the Virgin Queen, often by sexualizing their characters and writing them to use their sexuality as a tool by which to achieve their ends. She represents the worst fears of what can happen when a woman is allowed to rule. Infanticide, manipulation and emasculation of men, the disruption of ordered society, and the domestic economy. So... <laughs> The years of James's reign were marked by a spate of plays in which women use their positions to achieve some truly nefarious acts, like the Queen and Cymbeline, who, uh, as I mentioned briefly, poison and more poison and tries to murder and poison and murder and poison, mm -hmm. um, and is just kind of a dick, basically. Was she on our dick bracket? Do you know? The Queen from Cymbeline? Yeah. I don't think so. No, I don't huh. think she ranked beyond the first cut 
Okay. She wasn't right. up there with Livia. Livia right. definitely made it. Yeah, yeah. All right. So in the Devil's Charter, we have Lucretia, who's the Pope's daughter. She exacts revenge on her husband, Gismund, because he has been too controlling for her liking. As she prepares for his murder, she calls on all the women before her who have murdered their families. And she says, Lucretia cast off all servile fear. Revenge thyself upon thy jealous husband that hath betrayed thine honor, wronged thy bed. Fear not, with resolution act his death. If womanly thou melt, then call to mind impatient Medea's wrathful fury and raging Clytemnestra's hideous fact, Progeny's strange murder of her only son and Danae's fifty daughters, all but one, that in one night their husband sleeping slew, my cause as just as theirs, my heart as resolute, my hands as ready. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> when Gizmond enters for bed, Lucretia ties him up, makes him sign a statement that he slandered her, her father the Pope, and her brothers, then stabs him several times, arranges the scene to look like a suicide, and finally retires to bed. She uses her position as the Pope's daughter to refute suspicion when the body is discovered, but this is also the source of her eventual downfall. In Act 4, the Pope conjures devils to find out the responsible parties for a handful of murders, and when he discovers Lucretia's act, he arranges for her murder by providing her with poisoned makeup. She later puts it on in the dice. So these women, women like Lucretia, women like Cymbeline's Queen, women like this roll call of characters that I listed at the at the outset of this, they reflect the major fears of the Elizabethan era exercised in the safe space of a Jacobean England with a secure dynasty and a man on the throne. Um, their playwrights work out all of their fears about frailty, fertility, and dynastic concerns over succession by exploring what can happen when women are in charge. You know, things like poison, the usurpation of the order of succession, hired murder, orchestrated rape, child murder, adultery and regicide, stabbings, more poison, you know, whatever. Uh, and they calm those fears by punishing the women who do wrong, mostly by murdering them either on or off stage later in their place. So. You know, I think I heard some of those threats coming through in the 2016 election. All those bad mm. things were supposed to happen. Mm. Was it too soon? Is it too soon? Is it too late? Um, quick yeah. sidebar. Please register to vote. Really, though. Please, and then do it. Don't just register. register like, vote. then go do it. Make a plan. Yeah. Do it. Fucking do it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, so that's what I have to say about evil queens on the Jacobean stage. It's just that they exist and they're sexy. And uh, maybe it's because the Jacobean playwrights were happy to finally have a man back in charge. Oh, so misogyny. Uh, yes. <laughs> and patriarchy. Yeah, those Fucking things. Fucking A, man. Yeah. All Fucking right. A. Tell me about a Bronze Age king. Yeah, <laughs> so speaking of patriarchy, <laughs> um, I was telling Jess, you know, when we were planning this episode, I was like, I think I want to talk about production history because there really, there is like tiny, tiny sidebar. There is a fun history of thematically doubling the actor playing Posthumus and Clotten. Um, I don't know how far back it goes, but one of the most notable ones in this century was in 2007. Tom Hiddleston did that at somebody's production oh, in, in the that, UK. Oh, not, not in the it movie. It was like a... No, not in a movie. <laughs> not in any in kind of movie. movie. It was right. in a play. No, this is like 2007. Okay. Um, but like, it's a thing that is done and it's interesting and funny, but like not enough to talk about. And then I started thinking, actually, what I love about this is that I get to talk about Bronze Age history, which is my second favorite historical period uh, for Boudicca reasons, mostly. Um but uh, basically, yeah, I want to talk about the uh, the king, the Celtic king, Cunabellan, Cymbeline's kind of namesake, and how the telephone game of history um, made its way to Shakespeare's page and then stage. I'm so, so like the history. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the problem with a lot of these, um, like, really, really ancient periods is, of course, that, like, there was some those tribes had like some writing or at least pictures and stuff, but like it was mostly oral history still at that point. So like you had to rely on 
unreliable historians from the Roman perspective because the winners write history, sadly. Uh, and when the Romans finally succeeded in um, conquering these people on the British Isles, uh, they they documented what they thought they knew of their history, right? So it gets all fucked up. Um, but Cunobelin, um, he existed. He was a real king. This is like... I forget if Lear or like the historical King Lear is even older than this or younger. I don't know. Um, but this is like, if <laughs> you could make an argument to put this play like in the line of history plays, kind of, if it weren't not completely related to history at all. Um, <laughs> but because like the only, the literally the only thing that Cymbeline and Cunabellan share is the kind of namesake. And even that isn't totally accurate. It's not a play called Cunabellan. It's a play called Cymbeline. <laughs> um, so anyway, he was a pre-Roman king, a Celtic king um, from about AD 9 to AD 40. Um, that is, if anyone keeps track, that is pre-Boudicca, but only barely. And pre-Boudicca and the second anti-Roman uprising of that first century. From what archaeologists can tell from studying old coins, um, and there's an actual word for that, but I forgot what it is. It's something ology, but like the study of coins. Um, Cunabellan was uh, friendly enough with the Empire of Rome before Rome conquered the British Isles completely that, you know, they found at... in what they think is his burial site they found you know coins that are stamped with his name and face on them other artifacts that look like they came from the continent right so there was trade happening at least in his territories um he controlled the tribal territories of the catovolani and the trinovantes which basically doesn't mean anything to us now um but it's a giant chunk of southeastern england including what is now called london Right. So the London Territory, St. Albans, like that whole southeastern chunk, that was his his turf. OK, um, he had three sons um, and the names and the, like I'm going to keep saying I'm going to keep referring to him as Cunabellan. Um, you will see him documented in Roman history as Cunabellanus. You, that U.S., that Roman, that Latin uh, naming, um, which sure. is also what they have done to his the names of his sons. So uh, his sons, according to the Roman historians who documented them later, um, were Togodumnus and Caratacus and Adminius. Two of those sons, the first two that I named, Togodumnus and Caratacus, participated in the resistance against Augustine Rome in 43 and 45 AD. The other, Adminius, was banished by his father and sought refuge with Caligula in Rome in AD 40. Hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> he was I like, fuck you, dad. I'm going to Caligula. Living. I was like, Caligula's fucking nuts. I mean, um, right? Who, who right? Um, also, in, in uh, <laughs> the, uh, the source I read this from, it was actually pretty funny. I, Wikipedia mostly. But um, basically, Caligula was just batty <laughs> enough to think that one Briton defecting meant that the entire British Isles submitted to him. <laughs> and like, and like, he, he, I know, and he like That's tried amazing. to, um, lay siege at some point like between like the first like real oh siege God. but like he he said something batty he said something batty and Caligula like yes. which was like take the seashells do battle with the water like he was <laughs> nutty he was a nutty nutty person I could do a whole different episode on just Caligula and how <laughs> fucked up he was maybe we should maybe um, but we anyway should. Oh my god. <laughs> um yeah, spoilers. That's one of our new episodes. No, it's not. Um it could right, be though. Season four, um, no yeah, rules. so those were Cunabellan's sons, right? Um Cunabellan actually died though somewhere between AD forty and AD forty three, so before the uprising actually happened, his sons were the ones who had to kind of sp uh, spearhead that campaign along with the woman who would be called the Boudicca later but history forgets about her because men are terrible um, yeah so anyway um, <laughs> so he died before the Emperor Claudius and then later Augustus invaded Britain and brought it into the Roman Empire completely right um, the Romans tried this about a hundred years before that back in like 43 BC with Julius Caesar and I'll get into that in just a second and like they were unsuccessful the Celtic tribes actually 
like succeeded in keeping them at bay for another hundred years. And then they came back and were like, fuck you. And they fucked everybody up except Ireland, which they never made it to. And the Irish should never forget it. They're very proud of it. Um, <laughs> so let's talk for a second, just, just, a, just a tiny, tiny second about how many Celtic tribes there were. There were a lot of them. Um, and how many of them were like matriarchal or who that at least held different standards of gender norms. Like there were many, many female warriors um, that were reluctantly documented by these Roman historians. Um, but they never went like quite as far as to admit that women held power in these societies. Like the Romans just couldn't like their brains malfunction when they tried to think about that. Um, so when the Romans invaded, they brought their very special brand of patriarchy with them. Um, and they documented the history, quote unquote, of these peoples in a way that fitted their cultural values and supremacy. I roll. Um, just, just feel my eyes, hear my eyes. You hear that? Boink, boink. That's my eyes rolling out of my head and out my front door. They attributed power and they called people kings who weren't necessarily actual kings if they just happen to be like the prominent males of a tribe so um some of those roman historians include uh dio cassius suetonius and tacitus um who all contributed to this legend of cunabellan aka cymbeline right so here here's where the telephone game begins right was with these romans uh and then when england began well when england was england you know, at some point in that fuzzy time in that first millennium, um, when England became England uh, and they started writing, right. actually writing their own histories. Um, Cunabellan, this figure of Cunabellan pops up mm -hmm. uh, in the ninth century Historia Britonum as Bellinus, B-E-L-L-I-N-U-S, Bellinus. Um, and that work describes him as the British king in the time of Julius Caesar, which is actually a hundred years earlier. So that's the wrong king. <laughs> it's a completely different king, although maybe an ancestor of Cunabellans, um, but his name was Cassivellaunus. Uh, different dude. And he was successful. He was part of that campaign that actually rebuffed the Romans a hundred years before, which is uh, what I mentioned earlier. Um, so like wrong guy. <laughs> so when they wrote the history, they fucked it up. Um, and then a few centuries later, in the 12th century, in like middle 1100s, like 1130 or something like that, uh, Geoffrey Monmouth's Historia Regum Britannae, basically history of Britain's kings, um, which is now valued like largely as medieval mm -hmm. literature rather than as history. Cunabellan pops up several times. He gets yep. named as a as a person in story in the stories in this work several times. He's called Bellinus in one story. He's called Heli, H E L I in one story, and finally as Kimbellinus, K Y M B E L I N U S. And this last uh, Kimbellinus, like Cymbeline, um, in that story or the history of from Geoffrey Monmouth. Oh, Geoffrey. <laughs> Um, he's got two sons named Guiderius and Arvaragus. <gasps> what? Yeah. Where they came from, I don't know. I, I often wonder if Mr. Monmouth made them up. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but they have nothing to do, really, with Cunabellan and his three or two, <laughs> two sons. The two good sons, I suppose. And, and not the one who defected to Caligula. So... Uh, FYI, Monmouth, Jeffrey Monmouth, is also the guy responsible for a lot of the Arthurian legends. Like, he's that guy, right? Um, and his history, <laughs> again, feel my air quotes here, very strong. His history was then absorbed into Hollinshed's Chronicles, which we have definitely talked about on the pod before. Um, the Hollinshed Chronicles of uh, 1577, all about the history of Britain. Uh, you know, from the late 16th century. And that is most likely where Shakespeare came across the name and some of that story, which he then took none of <laughs> except the name <laughs> and put it into a weird, weird play that we now know as Cymbeline, right? Shakespeare being a a story magpie. He borrowed the uh, the fidelity test with Giacomo and Posthumus. Probably not the same character names, but that whole fidelity test that they have, he borrowed that from the Decameron. He borrowed some other stuff from a, a really early, early modern play 
from like the 1580s. Like he borrowed other things and took just plucked the name, the the bastardized name of this Celtic king, and pfft, stuck it on the play. <laughs> Um, in a play that also involves an evil queen um, and a guy named Posthumus and a girl named Imogen. Suddenly, um, Cunabellan, a.k.a. Cymbeline, has a daughter. Mm, what the fuck, Shakesy? I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. Um, but that is the actual person, what we know of him, uh, that this play is named for, right? Um, and if anybody wants really a really good work of historical fiction where an author has done meticulous research into what she can of the cultures of that time and the and the tribes of that time read the Boudicca series by Manda Scott um, she manages to bring back the women's contribution to that culture and in that fraught history uh, as well as like give shape and life to the men whose stories were actually recorded read the books just don't read them right now unless you can handle relentless sadness <laughs> amid everything else happening. Just like, um, yeah, I lent them to a friend recently and was like reliving the books through her while she read them. And then I was like, oh, I should read these myself, reread them. Like, I can't. It's been so long since I've read them. You know, like early 2000s was the last time I read them. Um yeah, I made it like halfway through book two. It's a tetralogy, so there's four books. Um, I made it halfway through book two and then had to close it again because then I was like, oh, right. This is nothing but darkness and tears because the Romans are awful. They were so bad. They were so bad. Um, yeah. It's a very moving. It's a really moving, wonderful series. Um which and in which Cunabellan appears for a while, but he dies early because he's not part of the Boudicca story, really, because she lived after him or, well, concurrently, but she lived beyond him, I should say. So anyway, read those books when you are emotionally prepared for them. <laughs> um, uh, fun fact. And yeah, that's what I got. Yep. I just got up and looked. Jeffrey of Monmouth is in the Norton Anthology of English Literature. Amazing. Yeah. I don't Literature is where he belongs. Yeah. 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 Uh, other people Not in my department history. teach him, but I was like, I feel like he's in the Norton. And in fact, mm -hmm. he is. Yeah. So. Yeah. Good old Jeffrey. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking um, up the history. <laughs> all right. So well, there you go. We're going to gossip a little bit and then yeah. get the hell out of here. Yeah. So we've been. Um, busy little bees working on our baking projects but also on like academic and and you know public facing uh, projects separately yeah. and together yeah. um so we're just this is a very self-serving gossip segment <laughs> as it should be since we've been away from you all for months um so i was uh, lucky enough to be asked to be a recurring actor and guest contributor i guess i don't know what the terminology is. I know what it is for a TV series. I'm not sure what it is for a podcast, but whatever that is, a recurring guest character, that's who I am on a new podcast called The Horned Moon Presents. And if you know anything at all about Shakespeare, you will know that that's a, a deep little cut to Midsummer Night's Dream. So obviously it's a Shakespeare podcast because hashtag on brand, but uh, it's a really fun little podcast started by a couple of friends of Jess's and mine, Merlin Sell and Marshall Garrett. Um, who are a writing and directing duo who were in our cohort in graduate school. Um, and Merlin has written the scripts and Marshall is kind of directing, but they're both also characters. Um, they're like, if anybody has seen Waiting for Guffman, that's sort of, it's like mockumentary style, but like also community radio theater is the premise here. So it's like, NPR <laughs> or SNL's very best version of like pseudo NPR, um, but also uh, about this like fictional town called Milford Haven. Get it? Milford Haven? Simoline, um, who who like their community theater isn't actually a theater. It's a like radio theater, like Foley effects and whatever. So it's got that kind of like uh, that kind of slings and arrows, like characters doing a show kind of inception sort of thing. So the first production that um, 
the Horned Moon Presents is going to talk about is Macbeth. I get to play Lady Macbeth, which was awesome. And my alter ego character, Agatha, is really fun. <laughs> um, so just, plus her name is Agatha. So just like be on the lookout for that. It premieres really, really soon. I think in October um, is the first episode. And it's a short, like, you know, seven or eight episode series. The preview is out now. So if you look for it on any podcasting platforms, you will find it. And it's, it's it was really fun to record. And I can't wait to hear the final things because I've only heard my portion of them. So I will be listening along with everybody else. Um, so that's the first thing for me. Yeah. Uh, way back. I actually maybe have already said this, but I'm going to say it, it again repeating. because like, I don't, what is time? Um, back in like March? Question mark? Uh, <laughs> what is time I, indeed? I, is time? I don't, I don't, I don't even anyway, know. Like in the early days of quarantine, um, I sat down with Emma Whipday of the A Bit Lit uh, project and talked about my dissertation. Um, that is now up on the internet for anyone to watch uh mm -hmm. so we'll throw a link up and if you want to watch me you can uh mm -hmm. and you you will get to see a glimpse into my office where i record this very podcast uh and you can see the giant cephalopod on the wall behind me so that exists i have not watched it because i can't <laughs> i lived it but people who i know who watched it said that i was charming and not just because they know and love me but also because i am charming so i saw it you yeah. were charming yeah yeah so yeah. give that give that a whirl if you and that's a fun little project anyway like watch yeah. their other episodes too yeah there's some cool shit out and there third item on our agenda mm -hmm. is the oral history of public shakespeare project with mm -hmm. Jeffrey Wilson, who is a lecturer at Harvard mm -hmm. uh, and a, a writer in his mm -hmm. own right. Mm -hmm. um, did you know, f weirdly, someone sent me, Sarah, my boss, sent me an article he wrote mm -hmm. today about yeah. Hamlet and suicide, which yeah, I read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I read his credits down at the bottom and he's got a forthcoming yep. book coming yep. out uh, yep. called Shakespeare and Game of Thrones. And I was like, What? Yeah. Jeffrey yeah. um so anyway like he really buried the lead on that one but then again we wouldn't have been able to like even get through what he needed us to get through if he had yeah. told me that ahead of time so that's fine um so he he was doing this project uh called the an oral history of public Shakespeare uh we are a part of it it's going to be well we're not sure I'm not even sure Jeff is sure what it's going to be except a series of videos for yeah. now um, it was meant to be part of a, a, a presentation a, he did a next year at a conference yeah a keynote that he did um, but now you know times being what they are he was thinking of releasing it early so we will keep you all updated on that but I think the most impressive thing to me was the promotional poster when he sent it out <laughs> seeing all the faces of the other scholars yeah we're in really up there good with company. us like really, really good, good company. company where like i was like i'm not i don't know if i'm worthy to be among some of these folks like this very it's in a very impressive group of people and yeah. and we were honored to be a part of it it was a lot of fun so yeah. keep an eye out for that as well mm -hmm. public shakespeare yeah yep. um back in june again what is time uh i recorded a video introduction for pericles my favorite play yes for that's right the shakespeare 2020 project that's being run by ian desher i think is how we say his name uh sure. he's mm -hmm. the guy who wrote all of those star wars shakespeare books like the yeah. force doth awaken or whatever um mm -hmm. he he does all of those and he's currently working on a, a and a Shakespeare-y adaptation of Frankenstein, which is cool. Um, awesome. So anyway, if you have, you know, like four minutes to spare and you want to hear me get way too excited about incest, uh, you can go <laughs> watch that. And again, get a peek into my office and the giant cephalopod hanging above me. Um, yeah. Uh, also, as I said earlier, I'm on the job market. So if you got a job, hire me. <laughs> 
<laughs> She's here, folks. She's ready. Yeah. We'll start the girl. we'll start the bidding. Right. <laughs> right. I, I would like secure employment and a living wage. Let's do it. I'm easy to please. Oh, girl, yeah. wouldn't we all? Right. Um, <laughs> and then last thing that I am gonna say uh, is if you ever have heard me talk about grad school and been like, you know grad school sounds interesting i wonder if that's a thing that i should do uh you can in fact very very soon come listen to me and some really awesomely smart wonderful of my faculty uh talk about my grad program the hudson Stroud program in renaissance studies at the university of alabama we have a zoom info session coming up on october 14th that is next wednesday yeah next wednesday from this from from now from when you're hearing this if you're hearing this on Mm -hmm. the day it comes out maybe it's in your past i don't know october 14th in the year 2020 that's when it is 10 million (laughs) years from now Uh, is when that will be it's at 5 p.m central so do the math for whatever time zone you're in um but it's on zoom so you can do it uh we'll throw a link up again to so you can register for that but also i'm just gonna say it because it's so easy it's tinyurl.com slash strode info two zero so um, I will I will be there. The director of my program will be there. Uh, my best friend Courtney will be there. So if you want to meet Courtney, you can meet her. That's that's what we got going on. That was awesome gossip. And thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Yeah. Tune in uh, not next week, but in fact, the week after, because we're not every week anymore. Hallelujah for us. Um, so next time, tune in next time uh, for something that we're calling a Queensmen romp. Mm, yes. Mm. Just make out. that what you will. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> Whamlet out. Whamlet out. Yes, queen. Although I don't think that's the queen they meant, but it's fine. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes and other fun stuff, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Also, I feel like if you could underscore this in post with like some like really dramatic music like I totally sweeping. Can. yeah just like make it make a drama yeah make a drama so we're a very big yeah. announcement in a world you. where there are very big announcements in a world when it stops being 2020 and turns into 2021 maybe you'll get a big announcement dun 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 wait and then i have to do this i have to do this because because i'm in there Bobby Newport. I don't get it. Oh my god. What is who the hell is Bobby Newport? Oh my god. Okay. Like half of our listeners who watch Parks and Rec totally got that reference. Oh the douche. Not the douche. Bobby Newport. That's crazy. I were in the douche is like a whole different thing. Bobby Newport is Paul Rudd. <laughs> you mean my boyfriend, Paul Rudd? Yes. Yes, of course. Bobby mm-hmm. Newport. Oh, right, yeah. I feel like such a dunce because I do watch Parks and Rec. That's just something I conveniently forgot. Bobby Newport. <laughs> Bobby Newport. You think if you just keep saying it, it'll eventually jog my memory? Yeah. <laughs>